Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Back. Coming up on the show, lawmakers debate how to deal with the decline in school construction money. Well, it's tough because if you're going to do it without a tax increase, there's going to have to be more cuts. CO2 removed from a smokestack can be made into all sorts of things we use every day. That's not only good for the environment, it is also... Not giving away something that we can then convert into a product that has value. We'll go inside what used to be one of the most secretive places in the country, a former nuclear missile launch facility outside of Cheyenne. You're, you're standing where none of you would ever get a chance to stand unless you were specifically authorized to be here. We'll also hear about the new education law and hear new ideas for what to do with all Wyoming's wilderness study areas. Those stories and more coming up on Open Spaces on Wyoming Public Radio News. Support for Open Spaces podcast comes from the Hobbs School of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Wyoming, uwyo.edu slash h-a-u-b. Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. It took Congress eight years and countless hours of listening to angry teachers and parents, but No Child Left Behind is soon to be a thing of the past. Matt Laszlo reports from Washington that Congress and the White House agreed to scrap the hated Bush-era law. Wyoming Senator Mike Enzi is now the budget chairman, but once upon a time, he was the top Republican on the Education Committee. So he's been calling for this education overhaul for some time. But Enzi says he wasn't surprised that it took so long to scrap the law. Actually, actually, we've got bills whose authorization have expired as early as 1983. So uh, seven years on something as uh, important as education is not a surprise. Lawmakers were supposed to overhaul No Child Left Behind in 2007, but they couldn't bridge the ideological divide. That's left a patchwork across the nation as the Obama administration encouraged states to embrace common core standards while granting waivers to some 43 states. Enzi says this overhaul marks a significant breakthrough. I tried to get it through several times when I was the ranking member. Um, There's always a tendency to go for more than what you can really get, and that's the situation that the, the, the Democrats were trying to do. And uh, this time it was a bipartisan bill. NC says the new law gives states the leeway they've been craving. This gets rid of the National School Board or any possibility for the National School Board or any possibility for the president to do what he's done on education. That's a huge change, and it'll be beneficial to kids in Wyoming. The new bill decreases the power of the education secretary, but still enables the department to compel states and school districts. Critics fear the bill will allow states to go back to the old system, that allows students to fall through the cracks. Virginia Congressman Bobby Scott is the top Democrat on the Education Committee. He says the federal government retains carrots and sticks. The ultimate authority, of course, is to withhold funds, but hopefully you never get to that. You just argue and uh, ask for different um, improvements in the plan and work with people so that, I mean, the idea is not to play with the funding. The idea is to educate the children. No Child Left Behind was intended to focus more resources on minorities and low-income students. Scott says he fears those groups will continue to fall through the cracks with a new bill. The achievement gaps, um, racial and ethnic, have been slowly closing over over the years. One gap that um, is 
is problematic is the income gap. Low-income students are doing not, uh, not as nearly as well as upper-income students. NZ sees things quite differently. He can only threaten to withhold funds on things that are against the law. We just changed the law, so there's hardly anything that can be against the law. There are still a few tests that have to be given, but the state can determine which ones and how they're going to count. Before you even had to count it a certain way, you had to use it for teacher evaluations. That's the biggest reason that there is a bipartisan bill on this. Congresswoman Cynthia Lummis was the only Wyoming lawmaker in D.C. to oppose the bill. But she says that's because they watered down the House passed bill when her chamber and the Senate conferenced together to hammer out differences. I'll tell you the uh, conference committee port was way better than the Senate bill and is better than current law. Uh, so it was a very close call for me. Uh, but at, at, at the end of the day, I just decided to, uh, uh, that my heart was with the House version, and so that was why I cast a no vote. Lummis complains the legislation didn't cut or consolidate as many programs as she would have liked, among other things. It retained flat funding uh, instead of increasing, and because I'm one of those people who thinks that education is a state responsibility, not a federal responsibility, the House language included uh, options for parents to uh, get out of this constant testing. Senator Enzi isn't as strident. He also thinks it's a huge improvement from the constraints put on Wyoming educators under No Child Left Behind. One of the things I've learned is you take what you can get and then you keep working on what you want. It took eight years for lawmakers to agree on the changes needed to overhaul No Child Left Behind. Analysts say it may be another eight years or even a decade for them to assess how these reforms are working in classrooms across the nation. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Matt Laszlo in Washington. President Obama signed that legislation replacing No Child Left Behind this week. It's called the Every Student Succeeds Act. In Wyoming, Superintendent of Public Instruction Jillian Balow is praising the federal education overhaul. She spoke with Wyoming Public Radio's Aaron Schrank about what the new law means for the state. The first question I want to ask you is, No Child Left Behind has been around since 2002, and at this point, the law has been seen by most in your field as unrealistic and ineffective. What, what's been the problem with No Child Left Behind? You're absolutely right that No Child Left Behind for, for many years has been seen as a broken education law. And part of the reason is that the federal government under No Child Left Behind drove the conversation. It was never the state's conversation to have. States were really at the beck and call of requirements put forth by the Department of Education at the national level. So ESSA, or as it's now called, Every Student Succeeds, or we love acronyms in education, so we'll call it ESSA, um, really gives us an opportunity to, to, to take a step back and say, now this is our conversation, and um, we can look at and leverage what we're doing well as a state and build on our challenges. And one of the big changes here with the new law is a shift in accountability from the feds to the states. And for those uh, who want a basic understanding of accountability, basically measuring the performance of schools and students and making determinations about how to fix those things. Um, What does the end of some federal micromanagement of education mean for Wyoming? What will our state and its local school districts 
be able to do that they perhaps could not do before? Yeah, you know, believe it or not, it means less for Wyoming than some other states, and here's why. Wyoming is one of seven states that doesn't have a No Child Left Behind waiver. Um, The 43 states that took No Child Left Behind waivers needed to meet additional requirements, and many of those requirements were around a federal accountability system. In Wyoming, partially because of our fierce independence and partially because we weren't uh, ever a waiver state, we focused, uh, rightly so, on our state accountability system. We knew that that would give us better information about our schools and about our students and about the opportunities that we were offering. And many states did not take that route. So many other states are building an accountability system from the ground up, really, and we simply aren't in that position. So we are well poised to move forward in a new era of education, and one underpinning is our accountability system. Certainly in this previous era of education, one of the things that in many folks' minds has probably defined the No Child Left Behind era is high-stakes testing, standardized testing. And standardized testing is still mandated under this new revamped law. As I understand, exams will be required for reading and math in third through eighth grade and another standardized test in high school. But the law does encourage states to set caps on testing time. And uh, with the uh, shift in accountability, Wyoming can now choose to base school performance on, you know, on a lot more than just tests. And so I guess I wonder, overall, these changes under, under the new law, what will it mean for testing in Wyoming? Will it mean less testing or not necessarily? Well, again, rightly so. We have done such a tremendous job in Wyoming of having a meaningful conversation over the course of the last year with the assessment task force. And they focused on a assessment system. They did not focus on a single standardized assessment. And so I think that we can keep going down that route of looking at the health of our education system as well as the the performance of our student and not just look at a single score. We know that that's the right way to assess students. ESSA now confirms that. ESSA now kind of paves the way for us to look at multiple indicators to base a student's performance or the health of our system on a single standardized test score has always been viewed as being unfair. And the, the solution was to add more tests. And we know how well that worked. As recently as last month, our president asked for a 2% cap on standardized testing. In Wyoming, our assessment task force went a step further and said 1%. We'll continue to go forward with the recommendations from the assessment task force as an underpinning for how we assess our students. Sure. Before No Child Left Behind, we weren't really talking about the achievement gap that exists in schools. Under this new law, the feds will still require states like Wyoming to report standardized test results based on students' race, income, disability status, and things like that. But now, instead of of being told by the feds what to do with that data, the decision will be left up to the states. I guess I I wonder what you think Wyoming uh, should and will do with that responsibility. What I can tell you as state superintendent is that the focus on the work before us will always be on increasing opportunities for all students, and it will always be focused on increasing achievement of students. It's important that we continue to have a common conversation, not only in Wyoming, but across our nation, about the achievement gap and the equity gap, and that we stay focused on providing the most support to our schools that are in most need of improvement and to our students who are at most, most risk of failure. 
Certainly. Uh, my last question, um, a lot of things that remain to be seen. This um, piece of legislation fully goes into effect, I think you'd mentioned in the 2017-2018 school year. But, but I guess I just want to know, overall, based on what you know so far, is it clear that the Every Student Succeeds Act is superior to No Child Left Behind? Well, in short, I'll answer yes, it is superior. That said, it's brand new and it's a thousand pages long. Uh, again, any time that flexibility and control is turned over to the state on an issue as important as education or any other example that we can think of, wildlife management, air quality, when those decisions are left up to the states to determine uh, how best to deal with the challenges and how best to set their state for success, that's a good thing, especially in the case of Wyoming. Jillian Balo is Wyoming's state superintendent of public instruction. Jillian, thank you so much for uh, talking with me today. Aaron, thank you so much for having me. come back, we'll hear about how to put carbon dioxide to good use. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. It takes a lot of energy to produce the food we eat, but technologies are improving to give some of that energy back to us after we've finished with it. As part of Inside Energy and Harvest Public Media's Feasting on Fuel project, Dan Boyce tells us about the potential fuel we are literally flushing down our toilets. In case that was a little too cryptic, this is in fact a story about poop. Well, at least it starts that way, with a lot of it. If you can picture eight million gallons of what people have flushed down their toilets, that's what I'm smelling right now. We're at Grand Junction, Colorado's wastewater treatment plant, staring down at a brown torrent of flowing raw sewage with the plant's manager, Dan Tonello. His facility has found a new use for some of that flow, the organic solid parts. The solids from the toilets, solids from uh, garbage disposals, from industrial processes. The solids have been processed at the plant for decades so they can be safely dumped at a landfill. And that processing produces methane, which the plant used to just burn off into the air. Not good for the environment and a waste of a wonderful resource. Yet with more infrastructure to further refine that methane, what you end up with is chemically identical to natural gas that's drilled from underground. In the evening when the trucks are done with their routes, they hook up, fill up. Grand Junction has been replacing an aging fleet of garbage trucks and buses with natural gas vehicles, fueled mostly by the human-sourced gas from the treatment plant. Tonella says Grand Junction is the first city in the nation to do that. We're looking at hundreds of thousands of dollars a year being saved by implementing this process. And for a utility our size, that's significant money. That's a model for small wastewater treatment plants anywhere in the country. Joanna Underwood is the president of Energy Vision, a nonprofit dedicated to expanding the use of this renewable natural gas. 
It's a common sense way, she says, for cities to both save money and lower greenhouse gas emissions. And Underwood points out there's other sources beyond human waste. I met her in the ground floor restaurant of a Denver hotel, and she started walking among the tables, pointing them out. Oh, lots. You're looking at people eating ham and toast and eggs. All of this is organic. Natural gas from food waste. And right now, food scraps from restaurants are being collected, along with that from grocery stores and other food manufacturers all over Colorado's densely populated front range. In just a few weeks, it will all be heading up to northern Colorado. The Heartland Biogas Facility is in its final stages of construction. It basically does the same thing the plant in Grand Junction does, but on a much bigger scale, an enormous scale. It's very unique. It's one of the largest in, in North America. Bob Yost and his company A1 Organics are partnering with the facility to coordinate all that food coming in. There could be 25, 30 semi-loads per day of food waste coming in. And then the food is mixed together with... And then the manure is added to that. Manure from a local dairy. Turns out the best way to get the most natural gas from waste is to have a balanced diet of both food scraps and poop. After they've created the renewable natural gas, it's injected into the pipeline, and then it's delivered to anywhere in the country. The same pipelines used for fossil fuel natural gas. Joanna Underwood of Energy Vision, she says if all the organic waste in the country was gathered, current technologies could produce enough natural gas to replace about half of the diesel fuel used in the U.S. transportation sector. So not a replacement for the traditional oil and gas industry by a long shot, but Underwood argues practical solutions to climate change have to be assembled piece by piece. One thing isn't going to do it, but for this sector, which in and of itself is big, it's not a small piece. And it's a piece we can each individually contribute to. About one cubic foot of natural gas per day, if you were wondering. For Inside Energy, I'm Dan Boyce. That story came to us as part of a collaboration between Inside Energy and Harvest Public Media. For more stories on how we're feasting on fuel, stay tuned to Wyoming Public Radio. Changing gears, Tuesday is an important date for those hoping to sign up for health insurance. Enrollment has been underway since November for those who purchase health care coverage through the federal marketplace via the website healthcare.gov. Kevin Cunahan oversees that effort, and he joins us to explain why Tuesday is so important. December 15th is the deadline for people to get coverage for January 1st. It's, the, it's the, probably the biggest deadline within open enrollment, just because the majority of folks obviously want to get coverage for the full calendar year. So we strongly encourage people, Bob, not to wait to the last minute, which is something that I typically do for everything, but to... But to get on healthcare.gov, uh, call the call center, which is at 800-318-2596, and see the plans that are available. You know, roughly 80% of folks in Wyoming are eligible for financial assistance, and 60% and of people in the state can find plans for under $75 after the, the subsidies. So it, it really makes a, a lot of sense for people just to find out what's available and, and, and get the confidential help that they need to walk them through the process. Maybe just to start with two, I'm curious what type of enrollment you've had this year or, or in some cases re-enrollment because we had a little glitch uh, with one of our carriers leaving. 
Yeah, well, you know, we're we're nationally we're doing um, extremely well. We've got almost three million plan selections uh, to date. We've got uh, over a million new enrollees uh, that have selected coverage, which we're very pleased about. Uh, in Wyoming, we've got roughly nine thousand uh, folks enrolled. Um, you know, there are eighty-eight plans that can be selected from from the insurance company offered in the state. So again, it just makes a whole lot of sense for people whether they're renewing coverage, whether they're uh, looking for coverage for the first time, just to get on to healthcare.gov and, and look at their choices. What kinds of things should they be looking at, Kevin? I mean, give the, maybe for the folks who are afraid of this or have never given it a shot before, what types of plans or what types of things maybe should they look for in a plan? Well, you know, a lot of this is obviously very individual to, to people's circumstances. So, for example, a single person may have priorities that are different than, uh, than, than families, uh, and we offer coverage for both singles and families. Uh, people with young kids may have different priorities than, than folks uh, whose kids have grown or, or don't have children. So all those are kind of uh, individual circumstances. But essentially what people should look for, and, 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 the, and one of the benefits of, of the getting coverage from healthcare.gov is that comprehensive coverage for physician's visit, pharmacy, hospitalization, all those kinds of things are automatically covered, irrespective of any plan that's selected. And people can call the call center at 800-318-2596, and the call center representatives will help people walk through what, me, what, what can be the best plan for their circumstance. Kevin, one of the things you, you talked about, I think you said 9,000 or so have signed up here in Wyoming. How is that number? Uh, is, is that a low number, or are we concerned about that at all? No, I think we think it's a good number. But it's, it's, you know, the real point, Bob, is it's really less the number as it really is making sure that people have the ability to look and shop and compare. You know, you know, it's great to find high enrollment. We obviously want it. It's a good sign of success, and it, it also makes sure that, that, that we get continually attractive to people. Uh, but, but the real issue is less keeping score in that regard as it is making sure that people find affordable coverage. And, and you know, what, what we're really most interested in is making sure that people see their options, uh, see what financial assistance is available to them, and also uh, recognize and avoid a potential penalty payment, which, as you know, goes up in 2016, um, and it goes up to 2.5% of household income. So, again, the reason to get coverage is not to avoid a penalty. The penalty exists. But it's, it's, to, it's to get the peace of mind of having insurance. And maybe one last thing for you, and, and I don't know if you know the answer to this, but we obviously had one of our carriers leave. I, I wonder if that's put a monkey wrench into anything. No, you know, it, 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 it really hasn't. You know, you know, this is the kind of business I've been around for a long time. And, and what you find is that people go in this market, they go out of the market, they go in the business, they go out of the business. You know, uh, the, the dominant insurance companies, uh, before the introduction of managed care in the 80s, almost none of them are left. So this business refreshes itself. It's very local. So, that, you know, it, it's less really about individual insurance companies as it is about providing choice. And we've got 88 plans that people can choose from in Wyoming. And, again, 60% can find plans for under $75 after the tax credit. So th- this is really what's important. It, it's the affordability. Kevin Cunahan with healthcare.gov. Thank you so much for taking time. Thank you, Bob.
coming up, we'll hear about the governor's budget plans and how to use CO2 to make unique products. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Melody Edwards. The legislature's Joint Appropriations Committee has wrapped up its first week of budget hearings. The committee heard from the governor early in the week and has started reviewing agency budgets. The governor wants to eventually divert money going into the state's permanent mineral trust fund in an effort to keep the state budget where it is. Wyoming Public Radio's Bob Beck reports that lawmakers have mixed thoughts on that idea, but they're more concerned that the governor has not given more thought to a major budget threat. One who likes the governor's overall approach is Laramie Representative Kathy Conley. Despite the fact that revenues are projected to decline over $600 million by 2018, Connolly says the state has plenty in reserve to not make massive budget cuts. She says the legislature has been socking lots of money away, and now it is time to slow some of that down. Right now, we need to, I, th- I think, look at those savings policies that we have so that we can do the kind of spending that we absolutely need to do. Connolly is a Democrat, but the majority of the Joint Appropriations Committee are Republicans, who are not so sure the governor is thinking through the revenue decline. House Appropriations Committee Chairman Steve Harshman says he does not think the state needs massive cuts or layoffs, and he wants to keep moving forward with some construction projects. We're going to use some revenue somewhere. I mean, I don't, I don't know that uh, anybody's going to cut over 10% and have rifts. I just don't think we're at that point yet. I don't think our, you know, the people that we represent would want us to do that. But the thing the governor did not address to Harshman's satisfaction is what to do about a projected $700 million shortfall for schools. During his budget hearing, the governor made it clear he wants the state to cut back on construction before it considers any tax increases. I believe that it's the wrong time to do that. Not that I don't think there's an issue that needs to be dealt with, but I think that the greatest burden of any increase would be put upon um, the very industries that are struggling the most now. Harshman disagrees with that approach. Well, it's tough because if you're going to do it without tax increases, there's going to have to be more cuts. Casper Senator Drew Perkins puts it more bluntly. Until or unless we find a uh, solution to the school side of the funding, that will sink the, uh, the ship of state as far as the budget goes. Perkins says they have to do something. We're going to have to make a choice of do we fund schools differently, do we expand the tax base for schools, or do we? Uh, is it time to look and reorganize the whole issue? School construction used to be paid by local taxpayers who would pass a bond issue. That would result in a temporary property tax hike until the new school was built. But a Supreme Court ruling in the 1990s said the state was responsible for paying for school construction itself. At the time, Senator Phil Nicholas was a fan of a statewide property tax to pay for school construction. Then along came millions of dollars in money from coal leases, and school construction was paid using that money. But that money is disappearing, and the state needs millions of dollars starting in 2017. Phil Nicholas agrees that industry would feel some pain. What's the higher burden? give him a small tax now and begin to to fill the lack of revenue that we're losing from Coley's bonuses, 
or to wait until the hole's so big that you have to go out and make a, a large tax. And the only large tax out there that would fill that void is a sales tax. Nicholas is pushing lawmakers to at least consider legislation that could get them moving towards solving the problem this year. But he admits it could be a tough sell. Members of the Appropriations Committee say they can't wait too long, though, for a solution because the next budget session could be worse than this one. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Bob Beck. Wyoming has long considered itself a leader in carbon management, how to capture and store carbon. And with the world's attention focused on the climate talks in Paris, the question of how to keep carbon out of the atmosphere has never been more pertinent. Kip Coddington is the new head of the University of Wyoming's Carbon Management Institute, and he sat down with Wyoming Public Radio's Stephanie Joyce to talk about the future of carbon storage technologies. What is Wyoming's potential for carbon capture and sequestration? The potential, the potential is wonderful. Just look, and it's it's in two different areas. I, I divide the world the world of geologic storage into two large buckets. One is storage during um, enhanced oil recovery, which we use the acronym CO2EOR, and that is where you're using CO2 to enhance the additional production of, of typically oil um, in a producing field, and then that CO2 is stored as part of that process. And just with the ample oil production activities in, in Wyoming, there's substantial storage capability in existing oil fields within the state. With respect to non-enhanced oil recovery storage, an example of which would be the Rock Springs uplift, there also is tremendous potential there as well. With non-EOR storage, obviously there's a few projects that have come online. There are uh, a few projects. Very few. <laughs> I mean, where where do you see this technology headed? I, I think it's those are those are great questions. And again, the example I always use, it almost uh, feels as if we're at Kitty Hawk and the Wright brothers have just built that aircraft and it's gone 200 feet down the beach. And then everyone is turning around <clears throat> and asking where the 747 is. I'm actually heartened by the number of projects that are moving forward. I would say for deep saline storage, the the issues are less technical than economic. It is a deadweight loss to inject CO2 into a, a non-productive activity, with, which would be storage as opposed to enhanced oil recovery. So the economics of those projects are challenged. But if we do go to a greater carbon and carbon constrained world, there will be greater imperative to do something with the CO2. At that future date, those saline storage opportunities may start to pencil. But until we get into that cost environment, that's probably not going to happen. But in the meantime, I think we are going to see more and more of these CO2 enhanced oil recovery projects go forward because there, there is an economic case to be made for that starting today. It seems to me like the biggest hurdle is that there is a pretty strong movement just to simply move away from burning fossil fuels. So there isn't a lot of enthusiasm for investing in ways to capture carbon on the back end. I am aware of this keep it in the ground movement. And I guess my my answer to the keep it in the ground movement is that at some point, reality has to kick in. I mean, People want the lights to come on. You have to be able to get in a vehicle and drive. So 
if 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 you keep it in the ground, what does that mean? That looks good for a slogan on a T-shirt, but what does that really mean? Fossil fuels are going to have a good long run. I think they will may stay under carbon management pressure that's going to continue to stay and the keep it in the ground movement may just be the next front. But I don't think they're going to go away, uh, certainly not soon. There's been a lot of criticism in the past that the companies who have the most vested interest in continuing to have coal, uh, the utilities and the coal companies, have not actually invested a lot of money in in this kind of technology and have not actually shown a great deal of interest in furthering this technology. Is that an unfair criticism? Uh, again, everything, everything. I don't think is black and white. There, uh, these these issues are gray. I guess I don't I don't entirely agree with that. First of all, with with utilities, utilities are they're in the business of making electrons. They you could you know, toss whatever fuel in the front door and they'll burn it or combust it or fuse it or whatever. They're in the electron business. They're not in the business of of defending particular f- fuels. So you're right. The utilities, I think, generally have been. I would say appropriately cautious about this technology because they have a duty to keep the lights on. The coal industry is, their their business model is mining coal. It's it's less of an, an R&D focus. It's less of a project development. I, I think the coal, the coal companies have done the best they could in, in a challenging economic environment. Yeah, I mean, I guess the question then is who, who is responsible? You know, if it's not uh, the coal companies and it's not the utilities, I mean, who, who's, who's going to put up the money because it's going to take a lot of money? Well, then I would ult- my, my ultimate answer there is that ultimately aren't these issues the, the taxpayers' responsibility? So if our, if, if our elective representatives um, have said that taking the carbon out or, or reducing carbon is a civic responsibility, yet we still need energy. Um, you know, all these low-carbon products sound good, but generally, you know, they come with a price. One of one of the sort of striking contradictions that I see is here in Wyoming, we're obviously investing in carbon management, but, you know, our political delegation doesn't actually acknowledge the existence of climate change. Uh, doesn't doesn't actually acknowledge that there is a need to capture carbon. So, is is the political climate that doesn't acknowledge climate change actually a hindrance to actually getting this kind of technology off the ground? I'm not an astute observer of the Wyoming political scene. Um, I, I will say that the Wyoming legislature has done a fantastic job, a wonderful job, and we're indebted to them for the the resources they've put into the university, the School of Energy Resources, and and these sorts of technologies. So the legislature has done a wonderful job of supporting the the R and D a- aspect of it. So when I when I look at that, I would have no reason to to conclude, you know, otherwise. Um, and I do think people are allowed to um, people are allowed to have a backup plan. Do you think that climate change is something that we we should be addressing that's a pressing societal concern. I, I think there are certain knowns. You can they've got that sensor in the in the top of the volcano and in Hawaii and they can see the parts per million of CO2 going up. That 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 is a known. Um, I think there are I'm unsettled by some of the squishiness of the science. But again at the end of the day it doesn't matter because the policy policymakers have already decided um, as upheld by the Supreme Court. And this is, this is the direction. Um, and I don't see that 
I don't see that changing. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for having me come in. I certainly appreciate it. Carbon dioxide emissions have a pretty bad rap these days. The Paris Climate Summit brought together delegations from all over the world in an effort to cut carbon emissions and avoid catastrophic global warming. But right now, the dirtiest fuel, coal, still supplies nearly 40% of the electricity in the U.S. and even more in many developing countries. The good news is this gas is not always destructive. CO2 can actually be turned into a building block to make all sorts of products that we use every day. Our Inside Energy reporter Lee Patterson has more on the furious race to capture carbon in the fight against climate change. The state of Wyoming is heavily dependent on coal, and so it's investing $15 million to build a carbon testing lab called the Integrated Test Center. Its first tenant, the $20 million Carbon X Prize, reimagined CO2. Reimagine CO2 as sunglasses, a bicycle, or a pair of sneakers. Like building materials, low emission fuels, and other items that we use every day. That's the big vision behind the Carbon X Prize. Take the carbon right out of harmful emissions and put it to use. The competition launched in September and is sponsored by U.S. energy giant NRG Energy and Canada's Oil Sands Innovation Alliance. Pressure is building worldwide to deal with emissions. Researchers all over the country are working on using carbon, as is the Department of Energy in collaboration with China. In Wyoming, the stakes are huge. Here's Governor Matt Mead talking about the Integrated Test Center. I can't wait to see what great minds come up with to reimagine CO2. I believe the innovations will be breathtaking and make a profound difference in the future of coal. There's a technical term for all of those innovations. In this building, we mainly talk about the CO2 capture and the CO2 utilization. CO2 utilization. Dr. Mao Hong Fan is a professor of chemical and petroleum engineering at the University of Wyoming. He shows me around the chemical and fuel labs and introduces me to some of his students. My name is Anthony, Anthony Richard. I primarily focus on the conversion of CO2 and hydrogen into methanol. It's used to make all kinds of products. From, let's say, paints and plastics to other types of chemicals. And when it's used in a process like this to make methanol, that CO2 isn't released into the atmosphere. And also... Not giving away something that we can then convert into a product that has value. Products like carbon fiber, cement, plastics, fertilizer, dry ice, and even carbonation in soft drinks. Captured CO2 can also be pumped underground to get more oil out. But the aim of this research goes way beyond the novelty of carbonating your Coke. The holy grail is finding a way to pay for carbon capture. That's the technology that removes emissions right out of the smokestack. But it's expensive and, ironically, uses a lot of energy in the process. Simon Bennett, an analyst with the International Energy Agency, says offsetting those costs with carbon products is a seductive option. Technology gets provided, consumerism will do the rest, and that's a very, very attractive thing. But, Bennett points out, The willingness to pay for CO2 to use it in industry is is not really stacking up in the current market context. 
According to the IEA, the industrial market for captured CO2 is around 200 million tons per year. Compare that to CO2 emissions from energy use in 2013, about 35 billion tons. Despite these odds, coal-dependent economies all over the world are banking on low-carbon technology. Mark Northam is the director of the University of Wyoming's School of Energy Resources. He describes the odd pair of twin goals, combating climate change while also keeping coal on the market. The real fly in the ointment is the technology gap between our desire to do that and our ability to do that. But bridging that gap will take time, money, and government support, three huge obstacles to disrupting the advance of climate change. For Inside Energy, I'm Lee Patterson. Inside Energy is a public media collaboration focused on America's energy issues. To wrap up, we'll talk about wilderness study areas and take a tour of a former missile alert facility. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. Imagine buying a house, but when you go to move in, the whole family bickers about who should get which bedroom, how to arrange the furniture, whether to landscape or not. And since no one can decide, you just let the house sit empty. That's kind of what happened back in the early 90s with 45 pieces of land around Wyoming designated as wilderness study areas. The study was complete 25 years ago, but since then, no one's been able to agree whether to officially make them wilderness or let them be used for other purposes. Wyoming Public Radio's Melody Edwards reports on a new strategy called the Wyoming Public Lands Initiative. It's built on a novel concept. Quit waiting for Congress to act and let the locals decide. Just in Fremont County alone, there's five wilderness study areas. County Commission Chair Doug Thompson can't even call them all to mind. There's the Badlands up around Dubois. There's the Sweetwater Rock down around, uh, oh, between uh, Jeffrey City and Rollins. There's Sweetwater Canyon. And for years, he's been trying to do something about them. He says some aren't even suitable for wilderness status because of all the human impacts there. There's portions of the Sweetwater Rock that are right next to a United States Highway has power lines. There's working ranches. Uh, In fact, I wrote a letter of opposition because it didn't match the criteria. But Thompson says there are other areas in this county that do fit the criteria. And that criteria is strict. Wilderness isn't just a place without roads, but also no motors, no wheels, not even chainsaws or mountain bikes. So making the choice to adopt one is often controversial with locals. Wyoming County Commission Association Director Peter Obermuller says that's one reason it's taken this long to deal with all these wilderness study areas. The BLM in Wyoming made those recommendations in 1991, and they said about half should be wilderness and half should be released. Well, Congress has the sole authority to make that final decision, and they haven't done so. So the federal agencies are stuck in limbo. He says there's one thing everyone does agree on. Right now you can't realize the full potential of these lands no matter what your desire for them is. He and many others think local stakeholders can best recognize those potentials. Wyoming's Wilderness Society representative Dan Smitherman says locals usually do what's best for their landscapes, and not just for sentimental reasons. Economic studies that have been done recently regarding public land show that proximity to public land 
as an economic benefit to the community. Smitherman says the Wilderness Society is a strong supporter of such locally driven initiatives because they bring everyone to the table, industry, recreationists, ranchers. So it's not about wilderness. It's about looking at a landscape and deciding what is the most appropriate way to utilize and protect that landscape. He says once local groups do sit down together, the next step is... These people collaboratively come up with a recommendation on how to treat this area, and they present it to the county commissioners, and then the county commissioners basically give it a thumbs up, thumbs down. He says other initiatives like this in the West show locals often do choose wilderness, or if not wilderness, other kinds of land protections, like national monuments or recreation areas. Then the plan is to get all of the participating counties to come together to bring a single state package to Congress. Congress in recent history has shown little appetite for unilaterally making a decision to go in and address wilderness. And in places where we've had success with wilderness, it's been a bottoms-up approach that started with a grassroots movement and then was presented to Congress. Wilderness Society Director Paul Spittler says he's worked on lots of these collaborations around the West. He tells of one recently in Utah where five counties collaborated. When I started uh, working in this county, this commissioner uh, literally could barely used the word wilderness. He almost had to spit it out like it was some sort of a insult. And, you know, now after two years, you know, he has gone to the mat in his county for wilderness, and we're going to the mat in his county for the economic development interests that, uh, that he's looking for. But Spittler says he's seen such local collaborations flop as well. They're not balanced. They're not driven by stakeholder interests at the local level. They're driven more by one side trying to impose its will on the other. And I will say that those proposals, on the whole, have fared very poorly in Congress. He says for it to work, the goal can't be to get everything you want, all wilderness or all economic development. The goal has to be a united front. What could be better than seeing a rancher, a motorized recreation interest, a conservationist, and a local county commissioner coming to Congress and saying, hey, We all agree on this proposal. You know, please support it. Counties should be able to start signing up for the Public Lands Initiative and organizing their working teams starting later this winter. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Melody Edwards. Some call Cheyenne's F.E. Warren Air Force Base the base that won the Cold War. That's because since the 1940s, it's been home to nuclear missiles meant to deter enemies abroad. And for 20 years, the base was the sole site of the Peacekeeper missile, the most advanced nuclear missile ever built by the U.S. Those weapons were decommissioned a decade ago, but now one former missile alert facility here is coming back to life as a tourist attraction. I mean, Public Radio's Miles Bryan reports. If everybody could just remove any rings, watches, or jewelry on their hands, if you're going to climb up and down the ladder, please remove A few wooden A-frame buildings sit beside the highway about 30 minutes east of Cheyenne. 
Go inside the big one and you'll find a ladder. Climb down about 100 feet and you're inside Quebec One. It's a former launch center for one of the deadliest weapons ever made, an intercontinental nuclear missile. Uh, what you didn't see coming in was the blast door. You're, you're standing where none of you would ever get a chance to stand um, unless you were specifically authorized to be here. Travis Beckwith is a cultural program manager for F.E. Warren. The reason he is allowed to be here, along with the rest of us on this media tour, is because the Peacekeeper missile is long gone. Now Beckwith and his team are trying to transform this former missile alert facility into your next vacation destination. The plan is to restore the place to its former glory, but right now it looks pretty run down. Lieutenant Colonel Johnny Galbert hasn't been here since it was shuttered. It is kind of bittersweet. You know, so far, a little nostalgic. So a little nostalgic, yeah. Back then, Galbert worked right here as a missileer. Nowadays, he works on missiles that are still active at sites nearby. He points out a cramped little room that sort of looks like the inside of a World War II-era submarine. So this is where the two crew members would spend their 24-hour shift, monitoring the status of the missile, running commands, doing inspections, and then, if need be, processing a message traffic sent directly down from the president. This whole facility isn't much bigger than a mobile home, and guys like Galbert spent a lot of time down here. Peter Aguirre worked with Galbert on the Peacekeeper missile crew. He was below ground on alert on the morning of September 11, 2001. Aguirre says he spent the next few days here waiting for orders. Obviously, uh, cooler heads prevailed, but uh, it was quite possibly the most intense moment I've ever had in my life. Wyoming state officials hope that the history and intrigue of the former nuclear missile alert facility will entice thousands of tourists to pay a visit. Millward Simpson is the director of Wyoming State Parks, which will eventually run the facility. There is indeed this niche market of tourism called nuclear tourism. We certainly want to advertise and market heavily to those folks. So I see it as uh, something that helps expand the offerings that we currently enjoy, but also that could attract its own kind of unique niche of visitors. Simpson says the state hopes to build up to about 50,000 visitors per year, and right now imagines charging about five bucks a head. Similar Cold War tourist sites have been booming in the last few years. The Ronald Reagan Minuteman missile site in South Dakota is on track to see about 100,000 visitors this year. Did you guys see the escape hatch? Back underground, Lieutenant Colonel Johnny Galbert says most aspects of this launch center were meticulously designed, except for the escape hatch. It's all paved over. So, and there's hatch a the escape over. hatch is paved over. So, you're really, really not going to get out of there. Um, but hey, I'll just take that one for my country. But those who want a first hand look at the escape hatch and the rest of Wyoming's Quebec One are going to have to wait. The state hopes to have this missile alert facility ready for tourists by 2019. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Miles Bryan. Thank you for listening to Open Spaces. If you missed part of our program or want to hear a segment again, you can find it on our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. Just click on Open Spaces. You can always hear the show if you sign up for our podcast either on that site or on iTunes. We'd appreciate it if you both rate and comment on the podcast. Anna Rader is our web editor. We also invite you to become a fan of our Wyoming Public Radio News Facebook page. And for breaking news and other information, you can follow all of our reporters on Twitter. Next week in our place, we'll have a special edition of Human Nature. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.